This is Gary Dick. And before we get to this week's episode of the Business and Beyond podcast, I want to tell you about the newest podcast from IBJ Media. It's called Off the Record with the Indiana 250. In each episode, IBJ Media CEO Nate Feldman talks with a different leader on the Indiana 250 list of the state's most influential leaders. They discuss their vision for Indiana's future, experiences in business, and advice for other aspiring entrepreneurs. New episodes are released on select Thursdays, so subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform and never miss an episode. Just search Indiana 250 off the record. Conway, Arkansas, oh yeah, such a good city in Faulkner Indiana's tech scene, much better off because of a guy who grew up in Conway, Arkansas. Christian Anderson's journey from the heart of the South to central Indiana, how gospel singers Bill and Gloria Gaither influenced him to study in Anderson, his huge impact on Hoosier entrepreneurs, and his take on leveraging the Indy 500 as an economic driver. This is and always will be the greatest spectacle in racing. This is the Indianapolis 500. He's my guest this week on the Business and Beyond podcast. Hello and welcome to the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. I'm Gary Dick. We're now into our third season, episode number 133. Christian Anderson is our guest this week. He has come a long way from those days growing up in Conway, Arkansas. Christian considered one of the pioneers in moving the tech needle forward in Indiana. And I am really pleased to be joined on the podcast this week by Christian Anderson, co-founder and partner at High Alpha. It's a venture studio here in Indianapolis. Uh, also founded uh, Studio Science. He's an angel investor. Actually co-founded six companies and has invested in at least 40 others. And one of the most interesting guys I know. Christian, welcome. Gary, great to be here. Uh, so I, I was trying to think, usually I try to give people an idea, you know, kind of a thumbnail description of, of my guest, and I couldn't come to a, a, an easy way to do it. So I'm just going to have you you to do it. You are a self-described restless opportunity seeker. Is that a- accurate? Well, that's, I, have, I, I haven't said that out loud in a while, but I think that's an accurate description. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you grew up. In rural Arkansas, let's take us back. Conway, is it Conway, Arkansas? Conway, Arkansas. Yes, sir. Yeah, give give us the uh, give us the story of a young Christian Anderson growing up in 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 Conway, Arkansas, and we'll want to find out how you made it here to Indiana. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. So I, as I shared earlier, my dirty little secret is I was born in in New York, uh, but when I was uh, five years old, my family moved to Central Arkansas, a little town called Conway. My mother had had grown up in a very rural pastoral existence in Arkansas, and my dad was kind of the quintessential New Yorker, and uh, he kind of won the first half, uh, and she won the second half. So when when myself and my siblings were still pretty young, we we moved to Arkansas to a really lovely little college town called Conway. 
most people haven't heard of it, uh, but it's uh, if you like if you like Scottie Pippen, that's where he played his college basketball yep. at the University of Central Arkansas. So he's he's the pride of the hometown. But yeah, I grew up in a very kind of rural context, but but it was uh, it was an interesting place to grow up. And you know, my my father ran business in Manhattan and maintained an office there while we lived in Arkansas. So I, I kind of grew up with one foot in the big city. Yeah. And and one foot in the country as we spent a lot of time in both locales. So did that, your dad's business background, did that kind of pique your interest in uh, ultimately lead you to be the the entrepreneur, the investor, the risk taker that you are today? Yeah, well, I, I think, yeah, my, I, I credit a lot of what I've ended up doing really to, to both my mom and my dad. They're very, very different and very, very complimentary. But my father, you know, growing up, I think if my dad had been like an insurance salesman and had been at home at 5 p.m. Monday through Friday and worked for the man or what have you, I probably would have a different perspective. But yeah, I grew up in the context where he he always ran his own business and and he was quite successful in that endeavor. And, and it was actually a creative business. He ran an architectural and interior design firm and, and served you know, kind of the elite on the East Coast, for lack of a better word. And so I, I saw that you could, you could run a business and in, and indulge kind of that part of your brain, um, but do it in a really, really creative way and deliver a really creative product. And so design was always core to how I grew up. It was it was important and kind of integrated in into really my life, but my my siblings' lives as well. And you know, from, from the time I was a kid, often, you know, I'll, I'll meet with young people that are graduating from college and they're saying, I'm not sure what I want to do yet. I didn't have that problem. When I was a kid, I knew I wanted to be a designer. Mm. And, you know, instead of asking for G.I. Joe and Transformer figurines at Christmas, I asked for drafting tables and airbrushes and computer graphics software. And, and so that was that was something that was always important to me. And, and fortunately, my parents indulged that and were able to indulge that. And uh Kind of knew I, I didn't know the right vocabulary for it. You know, uh-huh. if you had, couldn't describe my dream job back then. But it's it's interesting because today, when I think of kind of where I spend my time at the intersection of entrepreneurship, technology, design, and finance, it's shockingly similar. Had I had the vocabulary as a kid, I would have described it as something really similar to what I do today. Yeah, you are so interesting, uh, not only for your business success, but for the fact that you are a passionate advocate for Indianapolis and for Indiana, and we won't talk about that. But I'm interested in how you got from Conway, Arkansas to Anderson University. How did that happen? Yeah, it was, you know, grow, growing up where I where I grew up, um, most of the folks I knew, you know, kind of went two places after high school and went to uh, the University of Arkansas in, in beautiful Fayetteville in northwest Arkansas, or they may have hung around uh, the town I grew up in and where we have another remarkable university called uh, UCA or the University of Central Arkansas. I I kind of knew early on I wanted to, I, lo- I have a deep affection for the state of Arkansas. I love it and, and will advocate for it as passionately as I will advocate for Indianapolis. But I, I wanted to see something else and experience something else for some period of time. And my folks had good friends, coincidentally, that were big supporters of AU and uh, Anderson and suggested I come out and check out the campus. And I did and that. And you should mention how the, who those are. Those are some pretty big names. 
Yeah, Bill, Bill, our friends Bill and Gloria Gaither, um, yeah. who are uh, really remarkable human beings and have yes. done so much for uh, Indianapolis, but maybe specifically the, the city of Anderson and supporting that university and have, have played a role in launching so many remarkable careers. So, yeah, I owe them a big debt for tapping me on the shoulder and, and encouraging me to check it out. And Next thing I know, I'm loading up my pickup truck and driving to central Indiana. And that, you know, the rest is kind of history. I've, I've, I started my career uh, in Indy shortly after graduating from, from Anderson. And there was a brief stint where my family moved back to Arkansas from 2007 to 2015 while I was still running some businesses here in Indy. And I was commuting back and forth every other week for seven years and about a year into high alpha, I came home one night. I mean, it's a real, it's kind of a funny story. I'm driving home. It's like three in the morning from the airport. I've been delayed in Atlanta for six hours. I'm overwrought. I'm tired. And this sappy country song comes on talking about this guy missing his children growing up. And I'm, I'm crying. I'm driving my monster truck down Interstate 40. And I literally woke my wife up like at 3 a.m. on, you know, it was probably Saturday morning at that point and said, babe, I think we should move back to Indy. And she said, I agree. And she sold our home two weeks later and we uh, we loaded up like the Clampets and headed back to Indy. And that's <laughs> well, talk about diving into the tech scene, into the entrepreneurship and innovation scene in Indiana coming out of Anderson University was that was that an easy process? How how did you how did you integrate in and get get going in the uh, in the business world? Yeah, I I went to work for a guy right after I graduated in Anderson, a guy named Greg Bell, who's really a accomplished entrepreneur from Anderson, and uh, I went to work for him for about six months. And about six months after I took the job, Greg ended up winding that business down. It was called Intermark Interactive Technologies, and it was uh, internet-enabled touchscreen kiosks for e-commerce in 1997. So wow, 1997. Wow. Maybe maybe a little ahead of its time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, he uh, very ceremoniously let me know that my services would no longer be required. But I give I give him a lot of credit. He encouraged me not to go get a job somewhere else, and 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 actually said, you know, in life you're either fulfilling your own dreams or helping somebody else fulfill theirs. I don't agree with that, incidentally. But at the time, in my you know, my 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 frontal cortex still wasn't fully developed, and that really resonated with me. And he said, "You should go hang out your own shingle. I'm going to start a new company, a company called HealthX, and I'd like your help with that. And uh, I'll I'll support you as your first customer." So that was that. I moved to Broad Ripple. I leased a little 240 square foot office above the Starbucks right there on Broad Ripple Avenue. You know, the timing was interesting. This was a this was kind of late 90s. The internet kind of pretty kind of bust of 2000, you know, for people whose m memories go back that that far, tech was, we, we think of like the emergence of tech, you know, the, I think the layperson does is something that happened like in the mid 2000s with the rise of the iPhone and Facebook, but there was a whole other wave of kind of internet enabled innovation happening in, in the late 90s. And I was, you know, as they say in the land of the blind, the man with one eye leads, you know, I was able to code up websites and manage people's email servers and was trained as a designer. 
and started working with a cohort of these early internet companies. And one thing just kind of led to another. You look at the, you know, we, we were an early service provider for Exact Target, Angie's List, a Primo. These were remarkable businesses that that scaled ex, you know, at an extraordinary rate. And we were able to kind of go along for the ride. Well, talk about that. That led into, into more. You mentioned some of those uh, those companies, Exact Target and, and Scott Dorsey and a num- number of folks involved there who you were involved with, certainly at High Alpha. Did that that momentum start to to pick up from there? How did how did things advance from that point? Yeah, you know, as I mentioned earlier, ever since I was a kid, I knew I wanted to be in the design industry. And uh, you know, with uh, with the opportunity I had shortly after losing my first job to go into that full bore, some unique opportunities emerged from that. So I ran this kind of design and innovation consultancy called Studio Science for many many years and was serving largely venture-backed technology companies. And it's interesting when you're a service provider that's selling brains by the pound and working very hard and endeavoring to do excellent work, and you look over your shoulder and you see some of the the folks you're serving are building these product-oriented companies. And in my case, software and technology companies that have unbelievable gross margins that make money while you sleep, and uh, I thought that would be that would be fun. We should experiment with that. And early on, we started building out of Studio Science our own products, and initially kind of to serve ourselves. But ultimately, we see opportunities to build products that can be commercialized externally. And I tell people that I ran a design firm for the better part of two decades. But the reality is, we ran a product firm, we ran a venture fund, we ran a services firm. And it was it was great. It was like a blank canvas that I could experiment entrepreneurially across a whole host of endeavors. And uh, you know, one one of the things we did, Gary, early on was we began to take equity stakes in our customers in lieu of kind of full cash compensation. And that gave me this kind of backdoor education on the world of early stage finance and fundraising and mm-hmm. investing. And I ended up connecting with one of my best friends and now partners, Mike Fitzgerald, kind of in the mid 2000s. And we decided to launch a a venture fund called Gravity Ventures. And we were unencumbered by knowledge, as they say. So, and that ended up being a, a remarkable advantage. And we started doing that, I think, around 2009, 2010. And we got a reputation for being a, a group that would move very quickly and, and write these seed checks at a time where in the Midwest, there just was not an abundance of early stage capital. So I, I mentioned that only just to illustrate, we were running a design firm, but we were experimenting with lots of different business models, software startups, investing services. And, and that, I didn't go to school. I didn't. I don't have a business degree. I I think I took one business class in college, mm-hmm. so I was not aware of everything I was getting into. But in many ways, that that was my MBA. Yeah. What was what was Indianapolis, Indiana like at that point from a from a tech standpoint, entrepreneurship, all those kinds of things. Things have have changed a great deal. What was it like in, in Indy back in those days? Yeah. You know. I, Indy is, so you already mentioned that I'm kind of an yeah. apologetic champion of Indianapolis. So I would not encourage anyone to take what I'm going to say next with a grain of salt, because I think it's true. But I, I 
I am a, I am a champion, and I see mostly the good in people and in places. And so you'll have to dig to get me to be overtly critical. But but one of the things that I think is interesting about Indy is you look at so many other cities, specifically cities in the Rust Belt in the Midwest, Cleveland, Detroit, St. Louis, Cincinnati, and they're so defined by an industry, right? Obviously, when you think about Detroit, you think about the automotive industry, you think about Cincinnati, you think about CPG, consumer packaged goods and retail. Indy really wasn't famous for one thing, right? Obviously, we had this important pharmaceutical company and engine builder down south and some some background in insurance. And we had this kind of emergent sports strategy. So there was a lot of a lot of interesting things happened, but we weren't defined by one thing. And I think that, you know, for many years was a mark against Indy and the whole Indianapolis, Indian, India, no place or however right, you say right. it. Right, right, yeah. Term. And when, when the internet showed up and began to disrupt business models across the board, it turns out that being a tabula rasa city was an advantage mm-hmm. because we weren't kind of tethered to this identity that was 100 years old. And yes, I know there was an identity about cornfields and basketball, mm-hmm. but I mean, kind of commercially from a from a business perspective. And I think that allowed people in Indianapolis to actually make the shift to embracing the internet much quicker than what happened in St. Louis and Cleveland, Detroit and Cincinnati. And even when those cities began to do that, they filtered everything through the lens of that legacy industry. So if you want to, if you're going to start a technology company in Detroit, it needs to be focused on mobility, as an example. Indy, Indy didn't have any of that. And, and that institutional kind of identity baggage, the absence of that, I think allowed Indy to move much quicker and be, you know, have a have a wider aperture around what what's possible. Uh, th- another item I think that's interesting in this transition to uh, a more tech focused image, if you will, is the name on the top of the state's tallest building is now Salesforce. Now, uh, you know, a tech company that, you know, years ago, people would have thought it had to be a bank or an insurance company, but it's Salesforce. And interestingly enough, I think just recently marked the 10 year anniversary of the Salesforce acquisition uh, of exact target for, I think, two and a half billion dollars. How important was that looking back on that, that whole, the creation of exact target, uh, ultimately selling it? And what is what has come from that? Because, uh, you know, so many people have not not just uh, cashed their checks and left town, but have yeah, not yeah. back. You know, I I think a lot of regional ink has been spilled on this topic, but it I, I never get tired of talking about it. Ambition is contagious. I think when you see the fact that a, a breakout kind of community transforming business like exact target can happen in your own backyard. There's a lot of people that wake up and go, you know what? I think I could do that. And, you know, obviously attracting talent and the, the, the wealth creation and the expansion of the tax base and shining a light on, on indie, those were all important aspects of the exact target success story. But I think the most important part is that inspired a whole new generation of entrepreneurs in Indianapolis. And it inspired a whole new generation of investors in Indianapolis. And I I really can't overstate the importance for community of having an exemplar, having a breakout and, and realizing your neighbor who you golf with on Saturdays is there as an SVP. And you're like, you know what? 
if Sarah can do it, I can do it. And and this is true when you're talking about Little League Baseball. It's true when you're talking about politics, but it's certainly true in business that people are inspired by your successes. And that's why I... That's why I'm also such an unapologetic supporter of capitalism writ large, right? Because when done right, when done with integrity, it it can transform a lot of lives and it can be inspiring to so many people to have them get off their duff and do something maybe that they wouldn't have considered in the past. Much more with entrepreneur, investor, visionary Christian Anderson when the Business and Beyond podcast returns. Stay with us. At PNC Bank, we're committed to making a difference in the lives of our customers and communities by helping them move forward financially. As a Main Street bank, we try to do right by our customers with every encounter. Our local teams offer personalized financial advice to help guide you in making the best decision. We're proud to be part of your community. PNC Bank. See how we can make a difference for you at PNC.com. Copyright 2022, the PNC Financial Services Group Bank. All rights reserved. Welcome back to the Business and Beyond podcast. We're presented by PNC. My guest this week is Christian Anderson. Christian is the co-founder and a partner at High Alpha, a venture studio based here in Indianapolis, but an entrepreneur and an investor uh, who has co-founded six companies, invested in several dozen more. Christian, when you talk about Indianapolis or the Midwest in general as a quote-unquote tech hub or a center for technology and innovation, you get the 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 common you know tropes of flyover states, uh, you know, not enough venture capital, not enough innovation, not enough, not enough going on, no mountains, no oceans, <laughs> you know that kind of thing. You don't have what it takes in the Midwest to grow technology, and I know you are diametrically uh, opposed to that. Why? What what is it about Indianapolis that uh, can refute those claims? Yeah, I mean, I think mountains and you know. Uh, I think mountains and oceans are definitely an attractant. Uh, you 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 see uh, many coastal cities that have punched above their weight class because they're in beautiful locales. But you know, when people mention that, as it relates to Indy, I ask them if they've ever been to Austin, Texas, or if they've ever been to uh, Nashville, Tennessee, two cities that have extraordinarily vibrant economies. They're places people want to live. And the last time I was in both of those places, I didn't see an ocean. I didn't see any salt bodies of salt water, and I and I didn't see anything that would approach a mountain. So I am pretty dismissive of people who point out to the geographic limitations of of Indy. I think, and, and listen, Indy's not alone. There there are other cities I think that are operating at similar frequencies. But if you look at what's happening in Indy specifically relative to the Midwest, it's extraordinary. I don't really like punching above our weight class. I think we're in the right weight class. And I think our our cohort of competitors looks maybe different than the folks that uh, get up every morning to think about economic development, right? I don't think of our competitive cohort as Columbus, Ohio, or Cincinnati, Ohio, both lovely cities. I think of our our competitive cohort as, as Nashville and Austin and Atlanta. Uh, I think those are three excellent examples. And if you look at if you look at the numbers, we look a lot more like those Sunbelt cities than we do the Rust Belt cities. 
Why is that? I think there are probably, I won't, I don't know, maybe three primary levers uh, that influence that. One is, one is cultural. I do think that there is a bit of uh, a chip on the shoulder of, of many people in, in Indianapolis and in maybe Indiana writ large, but people live in cities. They don't live in states. So I, I'm going to talk about Indianapolis and you can extrapolate from that what you will. I think people in Indy kind of know what they're capable of and are kind of tired of the 30, 40 year old narrative that it's a you know, it's a cheap place to live and a nice place to raise a family. Those, those are both wonderful features, but that's not the headline, right? It's cheap and, and a nice place to raise a family is not the headline. I think there is something cultural in this city where people expect more. I think the Midwestern work ethic is a quantifiable, real thing. And if you talk to if you talk to hiring managers for companies on the coast, they will uh, confirm that they they love to recruit kids out of uh, Big Ten universities. There's something special about that that ethic. But I think paired with that kind of hard work and that grit and maybe a little chip on their shoulder, there is a spirit of, you know, we used to call it Midwestern humility or or niceness. I think it's collaboration. I think it's their, the, this city's ability to work within itself. If you look at the role of state government, local government, you, you go, go talk to people building a company in San Francisco and ask them what they think about their local and state government, right? They're, they're uh, antagonistic toward the innovators. That hasn't always been that way, but it's certainly that way right now. And over the last 20 or 30 years, in my experience in Indy, the amount of support and like literally cheering you on, not trying to throw roadblocks up in front of you, but cheering you on is remarkable. You know, I, I think I think business is the greatest tool for economic development. I think that most of our city and state leaders see that and agree with that. So just that collaboration from government is remarkable. Maybe more important is our our big companies, the private companies and the public companies in in Indianapolis are also have an orientation toward collaboration. They are some of the greatest supporters of early stage startups and entrepreneurs in the city. And, and I could I could rattle off a list, but from Heritage Group to Eli Lilly, mm -hmm. to Cummins to BC Forward, Millhouse. I mean, I look, I look at these companies from large to small and how easy it is to engage with them as an early stage company. Because listen, when you're a startup, okay, when you're a nine-month-old startup, you you got almost nothing right? You've got an idea, you've got a conviction, you have a belief in what you think the future should look like, but you don't have a robust product. You don't have a experienced sales force. You almost certainly don't have enough money to execute on your vision. So when you walk into the front door of a big company, they're organized as such that typically their, their immune system is very strong. Big companies' immune system is very strong. And it views anything early stage, disruptive as a potential threat to their core business. That's one of the most difficult parts about partnering with and selling into large companies. What I've seen in Indianapolis like bar exceeds what I've seen in any other market in terms of the big company's willingness to take the meeting, 
to be a design partner, to be an early customer, to be an advocate. You'd be hard pressed to find an entrepreneur in the city who has not who would not attest to that? And and I'm not saying that it works that way 100% of the time, but I think uh, the the way large companies in Indianapolis are willing to work with and partner and support startups mm-hmm. is is pretty remarkable. What what uh, Nashville gets a lot of buzz certainly. What does Nashville have that Indianapolis doesn't, or or, or do they? Uh, that's, okay, I'm so glad you asked this question. And your audience should know I didn't hear any of these questions in advance. So you're That's, getting correct. That's correct. You're getting everything off the cuff here. All right. Nashville, this is one of my favorite ones to talk about. So what's Nashville famous for, right? When you think Nashville, like in, in the in the zeitgeist, the lay yep. person, regardless of where they live, when they're in Nashville, they think country music. Yep. Country and Western, um, but maybe with a gloss, a veneer over it. And, um, you know, it's the number one, bachelorette party destination in the country now with apologies to Charleston, South Carolina, which I think used to own that. What Nashville did was they took something that was broadly thought of as a pejorative and they turned it into a positive. So if you think about the view of Nashville in the 70s and the 80s, it was the Mandrell sisters and Hee Haw. Okay. It was provincial. It was not glamorous. It was not sexy. Okay, and at some point, the 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 city leaders of Indianapolis really leaned in to what was a pejorative and owned it. I mean, the reality is, country music is not what drives the economy of Nashville. It's healthcare. All right, something like seventy percent of the beds in America are managed out of Nashville, Tennessee. But they they took this thing that they were already famous for, but not necessarily in a positive light, and embraced it like unapologetically. And I think I do not think you can overstate the impact of that on the on the growth of Nashville kind of across the board. When I look at indie, and I think what's our what's our country music? Like what's what's the corollary? What's the equivalent? You don't have to look too hard to figure out what it is. It's motorsports. You know, a sport, one of the fastest growing globally that has passionate fans ungodly amounts of money flowing into it. Heck, a Netflix series that's in the mm-hmm. top 10 was viewed every week. Cities around the world would kill to be known as the motorsports capital of the world. They would, they would, they would, it's got it all. It's innovation, it's technology, it's speed, it's danger, it's cosmopolitan. It's all of these attributes that are that are overtly positive. And I would argue, and this is coming from a country music fan, more interesting and exciting than country music. And and it's an area where if I was going to be critical of our city, it would be that we have not done enough collectively to embrace that and Mm -hmm. weave it into the tapestry of the entire community. Right. There is there is so much raw material surrounding this idea of motorsports. And we are we're famous for it. We're fam- I was in South Africa a couple of months ago. I tell people where I'm from. You know, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, they might have said Peyton Manning or the Colts, yeah. but it's uh, it's 8500. And I, and I just think it's this it's this remarkable asset that everyone kind of recognizes. We're a little jaded, I think, in Indianapolis about it, but it's this remarkable asset that I still believe is radically under leveraged. I think it should be a part of every discussion we have in the city. Yeah, and you look at that 
that uh, intersection of motorsports and technology. I know there's a lot of a lot of focus now, which is a natural, uh, and a lot of people think that 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 piece, that motorsports technology piece, can be one of the huge drivers for economic development and investment in the, in the city. Well, I think so, but I think it transcends its application in motorsports. To me, the motorsports piece is more, it's almost more symbolic. What does it represent and how can those, those elements of, of speed and innovation and risk-taking find purchase in all these other industries and, and really in our own identity as a, as a community? What's next for Christian uh, Anderson? What uh, what do you have on your plate? What would you like to see happen here in Indianapolis and in in Indiana when it comes to to tech and innovation? I'll just I'll throw it open to you as we wrap up. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. I I would probably leave you with uh, kind of my belief around like what is the power of entrepreneurship and its power to trans certainly transform individuals families, communities, really the entire state. I don't know that there's a more efficient vehicle for raising everybody up mm-hmm. than, than entrepreneurship. When you look at its ability to create opportunity, its ability to expand the tax base, which I know many people are interested in, to drive net migration, which is people voting with their feet, people moving here. That is, to me, one of, if not the most powerful levers that we can pull to ensure that our city continues to flourish. And so what can the city, what can the state do to create an even better context for that to happen? And it's no single person's job. It's not just Governor Holcomb's job to do that. It's not just Mayor Hogsett's job to do that. It's not just a a business leader's job to do that. It's kind of getting everybody on the same page around this is good. And what are the what are the decisions? What are the policies that we can enact to support and drive that? And I think I kind of mentioned this earlier, but this is a community that does a very good job of cheering each other on. Mm-hmm. And, and that's that's important. That posture of optimism. You have to be. I've never met a successful entrepreneur who is not delusionally optimistic about the future. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. If you're yeah. if you're a pessimist, that's okay. Just step to the side and let the optimist keep going because you have to believe that if you actually knew how hard it was going to be, how long it was going to take, how much it was going to stress your personal life, you wouldn't start, you know? So so optimism is a a critical component, maybe the most important component of building breakout businesses. I think Indianapolis is an optimistic community. And I would say as as a community, we need to continue to do everything we can to cultivate that in in our in our children in our families, in our relationships with our coworkers. I, th- I think it is extraordinarily important. Christian Anderson, uh, congratulations uh, on your continued success. It is uh, it is noteworthy and substantial, but also thank you for what you do to, to uh, uh, really, as you say, cheer on Indianapolis, the state of Indiana. It's very important and uh, always great catching up with you. Gary, likewise, and and I would just point out to your audience, I don't know of anyone in the city who's doing more to cheer people on and anyone in the city who's doing more to imbue a sense of optimism in our in our business community and in our community writ large. So as always, thank you for what you have 
always done and what you're going to continue to do in the future. It's much appreciated. I really appreciate that, uh, that, my friend. Christian Anderson, entrepreneur and innovator, my guest this week on the Business and Beyond podcast. It is a weekly conversation with achievers in business, sports, entertainment, and beyond. You can download every episode of the Business and Beyond podcast at InsideIndianaBusiness.com. You can get Indiana Business News 24-7 there as well. I'm Gary Dick. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.